Beloved congregation of the Lord, will you turn with me again to Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 6, where we read, For there shall be a day that the watchmen upon the Mount Ephraim shall cry, Arise ye, and let us go up to Zion, unto the Lord our God. Well, in our series through Jeremiah's book of comfort, including this chapter 31, we have been considering carefully the prophecy of the new covenant that is contained here. Jeremiah, writing in the first instance to the Jewish church under the Old Covenant, also as they are preparing for and entering into exile, looks ahead also to the days in which we live in the glorious aftermath of the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The institution of the New Covenant Church and the blessings that belong to it are the special interest of this passage And we considered in uh, our last sermon in this series, verse 5, Thou shalt yet plant vines upon the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall eat them as common things. We saw, as you will remember, that this speaks of the New Testament Church in its various expressions as individual congregations, whereas the single vine of the Old Covenant, the single Jewish uh, church in that nation, fell under the Lord's judgment. Now in its place comes the New Testament congregations, which flourish not only in Judea, but in Samaria and to the furthest ends of the earth. And the connection of verse 6 here is very clear. For there shall be a day that the watchmen upon Mount Ephraim shall cry. Mount Ephraim being, of course, this parallel expression to the mountains of Samaria for Ephraim, uh, named after one of the ten tribes of the northern kingdom, was one of the prominent mountains that, uh, that was in that land. And so there is a continuity between these two verses and also that which it is speaking of. The watchmen are referred to here. Now, of course, you may be thinking perhaps of the common expressions which are found in the scriptures concerning the prophets of God as watchmen. You think, for example, of the prophet Ezekiel, who speaks in this way in Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 17, as, as God addresses him, Son of man, I have made thee, I have made thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore, hear the word of my mouth and give them warning from me. There you see that uh, the reference is to a watchman who stands upon 
a great tower and keeping a careful gaze upon any threats on the horizon that may threaten the fortress or the city that he is guarding. And a fitting expression that is indeed for the prophets of God who warn the people of God when a threat approaches. And yet, the word that's used in our text is not the same word. Whereas Ezekiel's reference to a watchman concerns someone who is watching in a tower, in a city, in a, in a fortress of, of that kind, this has reference to something very specific, and that is the keeping of vines and the keeping of other plants in a, a, a farm or something like that. And the question then becomes, well, what is it that, I, that Jeremiah is seeking to draw out here? What is really the importance of this reference? As we've been carefully working through the previous five verses, I hope you've seen that every allusion virtually directs us to something or other in the history of the people of God. He's made numerous references to the exodus out of Egypt. He's made numerous references to the celebrations that followed and trying to uh, and seeking to point us through these ways to the spiritual realities of the new covenant. But what is it in the history of the people of God that would make us consider the watchman over, uh, over vines? Well, I think the answer comes to us in uh, the book of Second Kings. The authorship of First and Second Kings, which was originally one great book of the history of the nation of Israel and Judah, it, uh, its authorship is most commonly ascribed to Jeremiah himself. And so it wouldn't be all that surprising that there would be some allusion there. But indeed, when you look at all the different cases in which that word is used, this is one of those rare cases where it is drawn attention to. And so uh, before we proceed to unfold something of how this relates to the new covenant, which I hope to draw out in particular in the afternoon, I wish to retrace the steps uh, that Jeremiah, I believe, would have us to take to consider the, the, the specific episode in the people, history of the people of God that is being referred to here so we can draw spiritual lessons from it. And with that, I would take you back, if you would turn there, to 2 Kings chapter 17. And look with me in verse 9. Look with me in verse 9. The children of Israel did secretly those things that were not right against the Lord their God. And they built them high places in all their cities from the tower of the watchman to the fenced city. The Lord's help will simply consider the watchman, the watchman, and consider three thoughts. First, we will consider the view from the tower. 
Second, the view from heaven. And third, the view from history. So three views, a view from a tower, a view from heaven, and a view from history. Well, if, as I take it, Jeremiah was the author of the book of Kings, as well as his great prophecy, which we call Jeremiah, as well as the book of Lamentation, and certainly he can be said to be the instrument by which the Holy Spirit inspired more words than any other human author. And what a sorrowful task this man had to recount how it was throughout all the history of Israel they had fallen from such a great place of blessing. This book of of first and second kings you'll remember begins with that man david who bequeathed the kingdom to his man solomon and under solomon his son the kingdom came to its highest point uh, had more uh, territory under their rule the temple was constructed and the presence of god was there there was peace and prosperity with a wise and godly king ruling over them. And yet Jeremiah traces how, beginning with Solomon and his own sinful compromises, throughout the 19 kings that followed, great and terrible things resulted. The United Kingdom is fragmented. The ten kingdoms of the north separated from the south. The northern kingdom has been given over to ungodliness together with the south. And now 200 years after Solomon, we have here the accounting of the end of the northern kingdom. That seems to be the historical event that is in view here. Some... 722 years before the Lord Jesus Christ, the history that is unfolding here is of the dying of a nation, the terminal decline of a nation after a long and glorious history. But the view that that we find as we begin to consider this episode is, is not so terrifying Come with me and and I'll bring you up this tower. It's a tower in one of the regions of Samaria, as it was later called, or the northern kingdoms, Mount Ephraim and the other mountains, great high places. And there the people would customarily grow vines, vines to grow grapes for wine. And if you'll come with me and you'll go to one of these particular vineyards, you will see that there is a a farmer there uh, who is taking great care of his vines. That's really what the word watchman concerns, someone who is taking very special care, paying very close attention to his vineyard in order to ensure that it is protected. 
Prophet Isaiah uses that word to describe God's special care for his people. In Isaiah chapter 27, verses 2 and 3, In that day sing ye unto her a vineyard of red wine. I, the Lord, do keep it. Same word, keep it. I will water it every moment, lest any hurt it. I will keep it night and day. That's the role of a watchman over a vineyard, you see, to make sure that night or day nothing bad happens to these vines, that no animals would uh, damage them, that no pests would eat away at them, that no one would seek to steal their fruit, to ensure they don't die of a lack of hydration. That would be the role of this farmer. And in order to ensure that all is well, well, it, it appears that what he does is he builds a tower in order to attend to it. He builds this tower in order to ensure that all of his vines, all of these vines are watched. And so it is that this took place in many regions of the northern kingdom. They have these watchmen watching the vines. Wouldn't be such a bad job, you think, there. You can listen to the birds sing there. You can see the sky above you peacefully watching all of these vines and, of course, taking care that nothing bad happens. The commentator John Gill points uh, this out uh, in reference to the expression here, and they built them high places in all the cities from the tower of the watchman unto the fenced city. He says uh, this, um, not content with those built in former times, they built new ones. These not in their metropolis only, but in all the cities of the kingdom, and not in large cities only, but in every town and village between one fortified city and another. Even wherever there was a watchtower erected, either for shepherds to watch their flocks, or for keepers of gardens, orchids, and vineyards to watch the fruits of them, that they were not taken away. It's giving us a view here of a, of a specific moment in time. And what is happening here? Well, that if you were to be up there on this tower, above this vineyard, you wouldn't just be looking at those vines, but you would see what is being built around them, what is being built next to them. And what is being built are these idols. Idols. It's expressed there in uh, verse 16 and 17. They left all the commandments of the Lord their God and made them molten images, even two calves, and made a grove and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. And they caused their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire and used divination and enchantments and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, to provoke him to anger. And so the point is that from the most rural parts of the world, where just a few people were, and there were just a few people tending their vineyards, to the populated cities, this was being done. The worship of golden calves, 
the worship of other objects, and even the sacrificing of their own children, passing them through the fire as offerings unto the false god Baal. So it is, you read this book of Kings, and time and time again it traces how this came about. The high places, the high places, the places that were set apart there in the mountains and other other elevated terrain for the people to go and worship according to their idolatrous desires. Read this history and find how king after king perpetuated this terrible slight against the Lord. How? Because however much they may have made things better, they would not remove the high places. This terrible act of idolatry, which had permeated the whole nation. And here you have it, a solemn and a sad picture, if ever there was one. A people attending carefully to their vines, to their material prosperity, to their own livelihoods, and utterly ignoring what was right under their noses. The clear fact that they were offending a holy God. And I think that Jeremiah, in one way or another, is directing us back to this place. Not that we would just pass it over and say, well, that's an interesting fact. But that we would reflect on him. Stand with me for a moment upon this tower. And look at a people who are ignoring their sin. And ask yourself the question, might you be found to be in the exact same situation? The Lord would deal honestly with you this morning. If he would speak to your heart and soul, what would he say is right under your nose? Something in your life which you know is offensive to him, that you know is transgressing his holy laws. And yet you go about your business, you rise from your bed and you lay down at night and you go through it all your business and it's not addressed. It's not addressed. There's an inconsistency in your life. There is something that is in plain sight which is going to bring you unto a terrible end. Here is... The view from the tower, but I wish to bring you in the second place to the view from heaven. To the view from heaven. There's this chilling detail that's found in that same verse, verse 9. And the children of Israel did secretly those things which were not right against the Lord their God. They built them high places in all their cities, from the tower of the watchmen to the fenced city. Did you notice something? It almost escaped your attention. They did it secretly. They did it secretly. Well, they did it surely throughout the whole kingdom. It was permeating everything. And surely it was not a secret to those who were participating, and surely not a secret to anyone else who knew what was going on. Surely there was something 
about their conduct that made them believe that it was a secret from God. A secret from God. However it was, they'd fallen into a very wrong understanding of God. Though he had come so close unto them through his word, and though indeed he had revealed to them what is right and wrong from the law, they imagined in one way or another that they could conduct themselves in this way, worshiping false gods, sacrificing their own children. And yet at the same time, God would not find out. He would not bring anything bad upon their nation. A terrible thought to have. It's, it's utterly foolishness, if you would think about it, that you can keep something from God. Let me just refer you to a few texts on this matter. You have that well-known proverb from chapter 15 of Proverbs, verse 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Job 34, verses 21 to 22. For his eyes are upon the ways of man, and he seeth all his goings. There is no darkness nor shadow of death where the working workers of iniquity may hide themselves. Jeremiah himself speaks about this in the 23rd chapter, verse 24 of his prophecy. Can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him, saith the Lord? Do not I fill the heaven and earth, saith the Lord, a very sound argument, isn't it? He is everywhere. And can you imagine that his perception or his eyes are not also in every place? And of course, he beholds things as a righteous judge. Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 19, Great in counsel and mighty in work, for thine eyes are open upon all the ways of the son of men, sons of men to give everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. There is a judgment for the fruits of our doings. There is a day where all will stand before the judgment seat of Christ to receive the things done in the body, whether they be good or bad. There is a day in which every idle word spoken will be brought out, where even the secrets of men's hearts will be laid bare as the books of the consciences are opened. And none will be able to hide on that day, and so they cannot hide today. Why is it that you have a conscience? A conscience. Even atheists, surely, are puzzled by this. Why is it that there's some internal sense when you know that you've done something wrong? Perhaps no one else knows. Perhaps you've been able to hide it from so many others. And yet you know in your hearts when your thoughts go there that that is not right. And there's a disquiet. Why? Because that internal policeman, that internal monitor sent there on the authority of God himself is testifying to you of the coming judgment. The coming judgment when you will have to give an account for every thing that is done in the body. 
And yet, it's an unpleasant thing, and so it is suppressed, and so it is hidden. And so this delusion begins to arise that we can keep it secret from God. Inconsistencies and compromises of any kind were not actually hidden from him. Least of all, that terrible apostasy involved with tampering with the very worship of God himself. Least of all, that act of supreme idolatry whereby they murdered and slaughtered their own children. And yet, if we are being honest, we know that the very same temptation arises where when, it, when the circumstances are right, there can be a thought that no one will know, no one will see. And yet, God sees and God knows all. Here is... Something that is set before us, the view of heaven, the view of God. And it ought to fill us with a sense of this, surely that God is of pure eyes and he can even look upon iniquity and yet he sees us all together. Surely, if we have any sense at all, this will drive us to our knees. This will drive us down to the dust as we see how greatly we have offended this most high God. And yet in this particular case, it was not so. It was not so that this episode brought a people to their knees in repentance no but it brought them to utter destruction let me take you now to the view of history the view of history why is it that this is recorded why is it that there's this particular episode concerning these high places well because it is all in the context of the lord's judgment Jeremiah, as the able historian, has recorded for us exactly how it transpired. There, this final king of the northern kingdom by the name of Hoshea, and he is in one sense responsible for ticking off his former ally, the king of Assyria. And it's recorded in the first Four verses, very briefly, how it was that this was what initiated the invasion and captivity of himself. And yet, as the account here expands upon that episode, you come to see that over and through it all, throughout all those machinations and politics, what was really happening was the sovereign will of God. So it is that... Um, that the prophet Isaiah says in one place, Isaiah 10, verse 5, O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger, and the staff in their hand is mine indignation. This Assyrian empire, which was composed of many uh, countries that we now consider to be sort of the Middle East region, Iraq, Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, and at one point, they controlled all the eastern shores of the Mediterranean Sea. They were a great and a mighty empire. They stood astride all the other nations with great power and might, known for their cruelty, known for their barbarity. 
known for their idolatry, and now they besiege this people of God. For three long years, can you imagine it? There's the capital city being relentlessly assaulted by wave after wave of armies, the people starving, being being starved out before finally they capitulate and give their surrender. And it was a barbarous thing. In addition to all of the people slaughtered and all the people violated, a great, great number of them were led away into captivity. And the prophet Amos speaks of this, particularly in Amos chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Hear this word, ye kind of Bashan, that are in the mountain of Samaria, which oppress the poor, which crush the needy, which say to their masters, bring and let us drink. The Lord God hath sworn by his holiness that lo, the days come, lo, the days shall come upon you that he will take you away with hooks and your posterity with fish hooks. One commentator writes about this. When the Assyrians depopulated and exiled a conquered community, they led the captives away on journeys of hundreds of miles with the captives naked and attached together with a system of strings and fish hooks piercing through their lower lips. A terrible end to this nation of Israel, led away never to recover. And what is it that we have here? It is a history that is recorded and not just a human history, but an infallible divine history. One that would direct us to the reasons why. Why did this terrible judgment befall the people of Israel? Well, as I see it, uh, the Inspired author would direct us to at least a number of reasons. The first would be this. They sinned against their covenant God. They sinned against their covenant God. Look at verse 7. For so it was that the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, which had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods, and walked in the statutes of the heathen, whom the Lord cast out from before the children of Israel, and of the kings of Israel which they had made. God was a faithful covenant God unto that northern kingdom. He had led them out of Egypt, out of Pharaoh's grip, and revealed his glorious salvation through the parting of the Red Sea and through their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and through his depositing them into the promised land, removing those idolatrous nations. And yet you see that the people of God had broken covenant with Jehovah their Lord and they had followed in the way of those very idolatrous nations. Look at verse 12 here in Second Kings 17. For they served idols whereof the Lord had said unto them, Ye shall not do this thing. God had spoken so very clearly, as he always does. 
Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, nor any likeness of anything in heaven above, nor in earth beneath. For the Lord our God is a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Yes, a God of mercy. Yes, a God of forgiveness. Yes, indeed, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the very substance of that covenant of grace. Even this one who has promised in the ages before his coming through the promise of the seed through whom all the nations would be blessed. And yet, even in that covenant word, it was always to those who keep my commandments, only to those who repent of sins and seek a godly life unto none other can they presume upon the grace and mercy of God. For the grace and mercy of God are not a license to live in lawlessness, Do not imagine that you can live any way you please and still call yourself among those with an interest in Christ. No, the truth is that Christ saves us from the dominion of sin no less than its guilt. And so it was that the people stumbled upon this point. I would say this as well, not only they had sinned against their covenant God, but they'd sinned against so many warnings, so many warnings. Consider that which is recorded in verse 13. Yet the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah by all the prophets and by all the seers, saying, Turn ye from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes according to all the law which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. Has it been so with you, my friend? Have there been warnings that have been given to you of your need to repent? What have you done with them? How have these affected you? Have they driven you to that place where you humble yourself under the hand of God and say, yes, I have sinned. Yes, truth, Lord. No excuses, no hiding. I cast myself not upon your law, but upon your mercy in the covenant of grace. And I seek, Lord, that you would deal with me as a sinner who would receive your way of salvation. In that way, yes, there is a change. And yes, there is a transformation where you hold fast unto the law of God and say, I will not depart from this way, but I will show my gratitude towards the Lord. And yet, have you even begun to consider these things? Have you ever even begun to consider that, yes, not only for others, but also for me, these things must be real. They must be true. I must turn from my sin. I must confess my sin. I must seek that grace that would allow me to turn from my sin. How is it with you this morning? Is there anyone here who would hear such warnings and would say that these things can be put off unto a more seasonable time that I can become serious at a later hour well it did not work so well for this people 
I put this as the third and last thing, which is that they hardened their necks. They hardened their necks. Verse 14, notwithstanding, they would not hear, but hardened their necks like to the neck of their fathers that did not believe in the Lord their God. And they rejected his statutes and his covenant that he had made with their fathers and his testimonies, which he testified against them. And they followed vanity and became vain and went after the heathen that were round about them concerning whom the Lord had charged them that they should not do like them. They followed vanity and became vain. They followed vanity and they became vain. How was it? Well, they became vain. They became futile. They became empty in their thoughts and in their lives because they hardened their necks against the Lord's chastisements. Like a stubborn mule, they kicked and they and they resisted until all that their opportunities had been lost, until every warning fell to the ground, until finally the Lord's overtures of mercy were withdrawn and there was only the fearful judgment which followed. All of these testimonies, even of the gracious covenant, they were rejected. Are we not to examine ourselves upon this point? Is there a sensitivity to chastisement? Indeed, no one likes to be chastened. No one likes it when they are called out upon their sin and it is all laid bare before them. And yet, this is the key difference. Where one has been made teachable by the Holy Spirit of God, they do not stiffen their neck. They do not say, no, that is not true. They don't say, no, there, there are reasons why it is not so bad. And they don't add other excuses as well. It is, it is only this. I am a sinner. And God speaks truth. And I need his mercy. It was a terrible thing. A terrible thing because... When you look back from this view of history, when you consider it all, it just becomes one epic tragedy. One epic tragedy. I don't know if you've ever known the sting of great regret. Maybe you have. Maybe you can think back to a time in which you know you could have made something right. There was an opportunity where you could have mended a relationship that was just about to fracture away. There was an opportunity where you could have become serious about the things that mattered and then time was frittered away and now you must bear the consequences. Any one of us can live with such regrets and even after grace, there's so many things that the people of God live with concerning their past sins. But the greatest of all tragedies is to waste those opportunities even to your own judgment and destruction like this ancient people of God. I would shudder to think that there would be such a one here this morning. 
I would be so sorrowful to consider that there would be one within the sound of my voice who would know that God is merciful unto the repentant who turn unto the Lord Jesus Christ and yet would say that this can be put off. No, hear this history. See that this is for our instruction and our learning in this, that while it is yet the day of grace, Harden not your 